you have a Bible, let me encourage you to go Mark's Gospel in the 12th chapter. This is page 848, if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you there in the seats there. Let me pray. Father, before we open your word and before we read it, and definitely before I comment on it, uh, I want to pause and ask for your help and ask for your enablement. Uh, Father, it is our desire to know your word. Uh, You wrote this. This is your book. This is your story. Uh, We don't want to inject our own um, ideas and values into your word. We want to take your word and let those that form our values and our ideas. And so as we, we look at your book now, I pray that uh, your spirit will guide us and keep us free from distraction. And I pray that I would be able to communicate in a way that's helpful and that would be accurate to the text. And at the end of the day, we pray that you would be honored in this and that you would be magnified and glorified uh, as, a, as a result of us spending time together looking at this text of Scripture. So thank you. Thank you that we can do this. And we consider it a great honor and uh, a privilege to do so. And so we're, we're bowing before you, asking for you to do what only you can do here. And for your name's sake, in Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Um, some of you know from history uh, a man by the name of William Wilberforce. Um, he was an uh, Englishman who in 1780 was elected to Parliament in England. Uh, he was converted in 1785, became a Christian in 1785, so five years into his political career. He uh, uh, repented of his sins and found Christ as his Savior. Um, and that was largely partly, uh, or partly because of the ministry of John Newton. And some of you may know the name John Newton, uh, who was uh, formerly a slave trader, uh, converted, uh, just uh, became a tremendous uh, pastor, hymn writer. And uh, one of the, the people who came to know Christ through the ministry of John Newton was William Wilberforce. Newton uh, urged Wilberforce to use his political office to investigate the slave trade and uh, fight for its abolition in England. Uh, at the time, there was a tremendous uh, slave trade that was going on uh, through the West Indies and, and through the, the trade routes and things, and, um, and a lot of the economy of England was benefiting from this slave trade, and it was very common in England. And so Newton, because of his life, his former life in, in the slave, slave trade, he uh, was just wanted to see that abolished. And so when Wilberforce became a Christian and was a politician, he went to William Wilberforce and he says, please, would you please investigate this and see for yourself how terrible this is, this idea of the slave trade, and, and, and would you do something about it? So William uh, Wilberforce did investigate it, and this is what he concluded, and here's a quote from what he said. He said, so enormous, 
so dreadful, so irredeemable did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for the abolition, the abolition of slavery, a trade founded in iniquity and carried on as this was must be abolished. And so William Wilberforce, this became his, his, this, the fight for the abolition of slavery would become his priority in his political career. And it was really the fight of his life, if you will. And so thinking about that, I wanted to ask a question just to throw this out there so you can think about it for a second here. It says, if I were to ask you, what is the fight of your life? What would it be? What is the fight of your life? I think the text that we have before us will help us think through this idea. Um, so let me read it. This is Mark chapter 12, um, verse 1. And it began to speak to them, and it's important for us to understand who the them are. We've got to go up to the, the previous paragraph. We looked at it last week of how that was the, the religious leaders who were questioning the authority of Jesus. That's what they just, they were just questioning the authority of Jesus. So now Jesus speaks to them. He says, and he began to speak to them, these religious leaders who questioned his authority. He spoke to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they, these religious leaders, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. You've got to remember that the context here is he's just responding to people who are challenging his authority. And then he begins to tell this parable. Now, previously, we've been introduced to parables before Mark's gospel, but that was when they had rejected him. These same groups of people had rejected Jesus. And so he began to teach in parables, mainly, partly to, to hide truth from them and reveal to the disciples, but to hide the truth. And so that was one of the reasons for the parables. But here we have a turn in the parables. He uses the parable, but these people have the perception of what Jesus was teaching there. They knew 
that they were talking about, that he was talking about them. If you read Matthew's account of this in chapter 21 of Matthew, you would see that there's a little bit more detail given there. You would read that when Jesus asked the question, what will the owner do? It's actually the religious leaders that respond and say, well, you know, he would, he would kill them. He would, he would basically judge them, and then he would take the, their, the land away from them and give it to someone else. And then Jesus then responds like, yeah, you're right. And so they've condemned themselves with their own words. Mark here is truncating that message, as he often does, as being the shortest gospel. And he just, he kind of compresses that. But these men, these religious leaders, they knew, they knew that Jesus was talking about him. This was a fight that was going on. It was a fight, really, over authority. And so this is the one sentence I kind of want you to walk away with today and meditate on for the rest of the week is this, is the fight of your life is the fight over authority. The fight of your life is the fight over authority. Now, when I say the fight of your life, that can mean a couple different things. Uh, One, we could talk about in terms of longevity. Uh, The fight over the course of your lifetime is the fight for authority. Or it could be a priority. Uh, The fight of your life in terms of this is the most important fight in your life will be the fight over authority. And so you could take that a couple different ways. And so you say, well, Jeremy, which way do you mean it? I say both, okay? It's longevity and priority. The fight of our lives and the fight of your life and the fight over my life is is this idea of who's in charge, of who's in authority over my life. And remember, the context is that they have just challenged this in the previous paragraph, and now he begins to tell them a parable about this. And we see, obviously, these tenets in in the parable, obviously, we're rejecting authority here. So the fight of your life is the fight over authority. Let's walk through two main points out of this text this morning. First of all is this. Authority is determined by ownership, okay? And so how do we know what, who has the right to authority here? And that is determined uh, by ownership. Now, the terms of the relationship are very clear in this parable. Um, in verse 1, we see that the man planted the vineyard. It's his vineyard. He puts a fence around it. He digs the pit for it. He builds a tower, and then he leases it to these people. So the terms are very clear. Now, absentee landlords were very common in that day as it is today. It was very common for someone to have a piece of land and then own it and then lease it out for other people to use, and they would get most of the harvest. But the, the owner of it, as payment, would get some of the harvest of the uh, the land. And so that happens today. Instead of harvest, a lot of times it's money just given. But the idea is that it's the same. And so this would have been very common in Jesus's day for, for to do. So when Jesus is telling this parable, these people, these religious leaders, they would, have ex- they would have understood this right away that this is something that would have happened. That this was a very clear cut arrangement, very common arrangement about who owned what and who had authority over what and who should have been doing uh, what? There, were, there was no hidden surprises in the fine print of the contract here. This was very obvious. It's very obvious in the text here. And, you know, we often have to read legal documents and sign off on things. You know, recently my wife and I bought a house and, um, well, I should say we are purchasing a house. <laughs> um, and so the, you have to sign a ton of documents, right? And, 
And then the lady who's, you know, going through it, and she's just shoving things across. Let me tell you what this means. What this means. And so I'm kind of scanning it as fast as I can, you know. And at the end of the day, you kind of just start trusting the people and just saying, okay, I don't know what I'm signing, you know. You know, I don't know if, you know, I just signed away, you know, my firstborn. I have no idea. But, you know, you're just signing at some point, And you're hoping there's no hidden language in the contract. But often there is. And maybe you've heard some of these stories. Um, but in, whenever you update anything at a computer, you got to click this little I agree thing. I, you know, I agree to the terms. You know what I'm saying? How many of you read those? All right. I was expecting one nerd. I mean, one person. Um, Jane, you do. She, she reads it. Okay. All right. Um, you know, this is actually in Apple's iTunes and media. Um, their language, it says, you also agree that you will not use these products for any purposes prohibited by the United States law, including, without limitation, the development, design, manufacture, or production of nuclear missiles <laughs> or chemical or biological weapons. That's why I was downloading iTunes right there. You know? That's in. I double-checked it. It is in their license agreement. A Russian man, he got a credit card offer in the mail, and, uh, and he, he didn't like the terms that was offered to him. And so he uh, took it upon himself to rewrite the contract, including 0% interest, no fees, and no credit limit. He added clauses that also promised penalties to the bank should it fail to hold up its end of the agreement or attempt to cancel the contract. He signed it, sent it back, and they signed it as well, not noticing the amendments. So when the bank filed a lawsuit against him for unpaid balance and all the fees that went with him, the court ruled in the man's favor, requiring him only to pay the balance of the charge that he did and not the fees or anything. You see, he just snuck that in there. Pretty good deal, right? Okay, that's not happening in this text here. This is a very clear idea of who, uh, of the relationship, of the ownership and authority was clearly established here. And so the reason why I'm taking time to talk about that this morning, you think, well, that's kind of obvious in the text. But here's the point I want to make. The terms of our relationship with God are just as obvious and just as clear. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you had from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Go to, go to Colossians. So you can hold your place here, Mark, but just go over to Colossians chapter 3 quickly here. As a few books over to your right. This will be page 984 if you're using the Bibles provided for you there. I just wanted to see here the, the terms and the expectations of being a Christian here. God, God makes it very clear. There's no, there's no hidden language in the contract here. There's no, there's no uh, uh, you know, bait and switch at all with God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If then, and that really is the idea of since, it's, it's, it's uh, the way that word if there is the idea of it's assuming it, um, assuming the, the actuality of whatever it's talking about there. So since then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things in the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, 
Because you're dead in Christ. Because, I mean, you're dead and your life is hidden in Christ. So therefore, put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk out of your mouth. Do not lie to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You see, this is all throughout the New Testament. There's no surprises here. The, the relationship was clearly established and clearly identified in the New Testament that when we ask Christ to save us from our sins, that we are giving everything to him. That the idea is that he is supposed to have complete authority over our lives. And authority is determined by ownership, and he owns this because he's the creator of all things. We often, though, and here's the problem, we often confuse leasing with owning. And that's what these people were doing here back in Mark chapter uh, 12, is they were confusing this idea of leasing versus owning. They, they thought that they could act as if they owned. They wanted their own a vineyard. They wanted to act as if it was theirs. In fact, that's the reason why they killed the they killed the son in the end is because they recognize, okay, he's the he's the heir. And if we kill him, the law was is that if there was no legitimate heir to a, a property, if someone was on the land like a squatter, then they could get it. They could actually uh, own it. In fact, when when I was in India talking with uh, uh, one of the pastors there, that's there's a similar law there. A similar law is that if you rent a property. For uh, I think it was seven years uh, consistently, then you could actually, with no break in that, you could actually claim ownership of it. Okay, and this was one of the reasons why the church that we're supporting over there, that the owner suddenly wants to kick them out, was because they're coming up on year seven, and he doesn't. He thinks that they're. He's afraid that they're going to try to take ownership of it, which I don't think that it would. But that's the point. These laws, it's foreign to us because we wouldn't think that way in our society. But in other cultures, this is very common. And so this is what they were thinking. They were thinking that they could get ownership of this. They were confusing the idea of leasing versus owning. They were acting as if it was already theirs. They were not willing to uh, relinquish and use what was given to them for their owner's benefit, but they only want it for their own benefit. They were confusing leasing with owning. You know, I often wonder if we do the same thing. The terms are very clear about why God has given us certain things. He's given us everything, really. But we act as if we're the ones that own it. One of the jobs I had uh, when I was in college, I, was, uh, I worked in a warehouse, a third-party warehouse, where I drove a forklift, and I loaded and unloaded trucks all day long. It's kind of a fun job, actually. And... Uh, we had a lot of products from a lot of different corporations and businesses, and um, I remember uh, we had a department where their job was to get product from all the stuff we were storing and make different pallets out of them, wrap them up when new trucks would come in, and then I and some of the other guys would come with a forklift that so we'd pick up all the product and load the trucks with them. Now, this department where they would make the pallets of all the material, that was often uh, we had uh, high seasons and low seasons. And so, like, it, sometimes we'd have lots of work there, and sometimes we'd have very little work. And so, consequently, much of that area was staffed by temp uh, agency, uh, temp temporary workers. 
Now, some of those guys, they, they hoped to get a full-time job, and, um, and sometimes that worked out, sometimes it didn't. I remember one day when I was uh, uh, towards the end of my shift, and uh, there was a particular individual that uh, he was a temp worker, and the owner of the company happened to be there that day, and he told him, hey, thanks for your, uh, your work for us. We're not going to continue this contract, um, so uh, you don't need to come to work next week. This man, uh, I, I happened to be driving right by then, he started screaming at the owner and started physically assaulting him, saying, this is my job. You can't take my job away from me. Now, the problem that this man had was that he was confusing the terms of the relationship. It was, it was, everyone understood that when the temporary workers came in, that there was only for a certain time. And then after that time, if it continued, fine, but there's no guarantee about that. And so I'm bringing all these illustrations and coming at it from different angles because we often do the same thing. We confuse what we have. We confuse the leasing of it versus the owning of it. We believe that what we have is for our own good and for our own sake and for our own selves rather than for God. And here's the application. We are designed to live for God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so this is the, the reason we're, we're the workmanship of God, of, of Christ. He created us. And there's a purpose there for good works. And so that we do good in the name of God. So God gets the glory for that. We're not trying to earn salvation through that way, but we're trying to live out our salvation by doing these good works. And so everything that we have, we need to understand that everything we have is on loan from God. Everything that you own, all, all the possessions that you have, and the house that you own, and the money you have in your bank account, and, and, and your talents, and your ability, the time that you have, your health, everything you have is on loan from God. The terms are very clear. He hasn't been sneaky about this. But how many times do we live like these tenants? And say, no, 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 this is for me. This is for me. This is for my success. This is for my reputation. This is for my happiness. Right? And so if we're going to have this fight of our life, the fight of our authority, we need to understand that God is the authority in our life and that everything we have, He owns. And authority is determined by ownership. Now I need to move on. There's only two points here. The second point is this. Authority is beneficial or is good to all when the owner is good. Because there's one thing if you have an owner and authority is established, but if it's a bad owner, then that's really bad authority. But the owner is really good. And so I want to point out some things about this owner from this text of Scripture that obviously point us to God here. First of all, is that this good owner had a plan. This wasn't just something that he just haphazardly threw together. This was a plan that he had put together. And the good owner, he planned this, this, this vineyard. He put a fence around it. He dug and he, he leased it out. And so there was an actual plan for this vineyard that he had. It wasn't something that he was just making up as he went along. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and give you a hope. Now, the point that we can take away from that text is that God has a plan for everybody. God's plan that he's working out in a, in, in, on one level, the plan that he has for us is the exact same plan. And on another level, it's very individualized. 
And the level of this is the same is that we're to glorify God and we're to make disciples. That's God's plan for everybody who are believers in him. So it's the same. On another level, it's very individualized in terms of that we don't always fulfill that general plan in the same way. You have different abilities. You have different talents than I do. And you're just supposed to use those talents and use those abilities in ways that I just simply cannot. And I'm supposed to use the talents and abilities that God has given me in ways that you can't use. And so in another way, it's very individualized. But the point is, is that God has a plan, and he's planning our lives. Psalm 139, verse 14. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. Every one of us fearfully and wonderfully made. By design, he gave you the circumstances that he gave you. He gave you the family that he gave you. Uh, it's no secret that I like history. I'm going to be teaching that church history course coming up here. It always amazes me of how people were born at a certain time. And, and also, it's no, it's no secret that the, the idea of leadership has is, is always intrigued me, and it, it's become a, kind of a, a lifelong study for me. And, and one of the questions that w- when, you, when you study leadership is that there's, there's, a, there's a question out there that is, are leaders made or are leaders uh, born? Or are leaders just determined by their circumstances? Uh, for instance, if Abraham Lincoln had been born in the, you know, 21st century, would he be as influential of a president as he was when he was? Or was it simply because of the situation that he was born into, the circumstances that he was born into, that he was able to be influenced in, on the abolition of slavery here in the United States? So are we prized of circumstance? So this idea of time and this idea of leadership and this idea of how we act, all that to say is that I don't know the answers to that. All I know is that God made no mistake when he placed you in the era that he placed you, in the place that he placed you, and in the time and the circumstances. I've often wondered why I was born to an English-speaking family. The reason why I wonder that is because the study materials in for Bible study, by far, are most in English. I mean, it is not even close. It's a huge grace gift that God has given to us. It doesn't mean that we hold it over people. It just means we're grateful for it. So the point is is that there's a plan that God has for your life. And so are are you recognizing that? Are you submitting to that authority in God's life, in, in your life, and submitting authority to God? Authority is beneficial when the owner is good, and, and this owner was really good because he, he had a plan here, but not only did he plan, he, he provided there. We talk about how the, he, Jesus says he put a fence around it, dug a pit, and wine press in a tower for protection, and, and to, to make sure that, um, uh, that this would be a success. The, the, the owner here gave everything and ensured the success of the tenants. He did not set them up for failure. He did not put them in the, the, a place where the vineyard could not produce a harvest. He did not uh, provide protection for them. He didn't just leave them to the elements. He, didn't, he, he provided for them to ensure their success. That's a good owner. And God has done the same thing. He provides for us. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. It says that my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. 
So whatever you need for this life and whatever you need to live godly in this life, we're told that God has given that to us, namely through his word and namely through the, the, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the idea is that there's a provision that's given to us to live successfully in this life for God under the authority of him. Not only was he, uh, did he plan and he provide, but I also see, and you can probably see it here, is that he was very patient. We could also use the word persistent, but he was very patient here. I mean, he literally just kept sending people to the point where it was obnoxious and actually irresponsible, it would seem. He just kept sending people and sending people and sending people, and finally he sends his own son. You see, God, and he works with, he's very patient with us. Think about how he's patient with you. Think about the, the, the number of times that you have had to confess the same sin over and over and over and over again. Think about how sometimes the, 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 the time between confessing that same sin is very, very short. God's very patient, right? He's very, very patient, very persistent in, 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 in his authority over us. He gives us forgiveness and allows for repentance. That's a good owner. It's a good owner. It's a, it's, it's a good owner to be under his authority. Some of you may, in your house or garage, have a can of WD-40. I think maybe I've shared this story before. Uh, WD stands for water displacement. Didn't know if you knew that or not. Um, 40 means that's the, it was the 40th formula they tried, okay? So they had 39 failures, okay? So it could have easily been WD-39 <laughs> or WD-41, but no, it was on the 40th formula that they tried. They got what they were looking for. It shows us persistence. Uh, Edison was a light bulb. You know, there's another example of people just persisting and persisting and persisting. You know, we get that. When, whenever I see that persistence in humans and that patience, that's a reflection of God. It's a reflection of God and how he works with us and how he interacts with us. And, and he, he is very patient towards us. This is so important. If we recognize the authority in our life that this is a good God, okay, this is a good authority in our life that we can submit to, because he's very kind, he's very gracious. And then there's one last aspect of the owner that I want to point out, is that he will prevail. And he prevails in this verse 10. It says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so Jesus here moves from the metaphor, or moves from the story, the parable of the vineyard, and moves to a metaphor of a, of a, of a, of a stone. But he's quoting Psalm 118 here. And it says that the builders rejected the stone, but, but that stone has become the cornerstone of the most important stone of the building. And, and this was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And so regardless of whether or not we recognize God's authority, he will prevail. Okay, he is authority. Uh, it will bring great joy to your life to recognize God's authority, and at the same time it will bring great sorrow to ignore or reject God's authority as we see here. And this is why I say this is the fight of our lives every day. Whose authority are we living under? Usually it's either we're living under our own authority or we live under God's authority. The owner's going to prevail here. And so 
The point is here is that these people here, this, this metaphor from Psalm 118 is that there was something extremely valuable. It was extremely crucial to the building project. It was, it was life-changing that they had, and they just simply cast it aside. And that's what he's saying that these religious leaders were doing with Jesus. He's saying that you have the answer to your problems. You have what is needed. You have what is crucial to the foundation of the religious community right here looking at you, speaking to you, and you're just casting him aside. And we often do that when we cast God's authority aside in our lives. This story kind of struck uh, close to me a little bit. I, as some of you know, I, my wife and I, we lived in Rhode Island for a few years. And I, I remember um, uh, one of the, uh, and this is, is a different culture in a lot of ways, what I was used to in the Midwest, uh, very good, and, and you still have very good friends over there, but there were some things that were different. They had some language things that, uh, um, you know, uh, it was a little hard to understand at times. Uh, you know, you had a pot the car, you know, things like that. And, and uh, they made fun of their own accent, so it's good. Although it was interesting when the kids in the youth group would say that I had an accent. I don't have an accent. You have an accent. But, uh, but the point is, is that there were some cultural things that I remember being asked if I wanted uh, some, it was a neighbor, next door neighbor. He says, hey, I got a bunch of quahogs. You want some? I had no idea what a quahog was. Okay. I said, um, is it legal? Okay. You know, I mean, I, I had no idea what this thing was. Well, if you don't know, it's a clam, right? Okay. It's a kind of a clam. And they, and they get these, and they got these, like these rakes. Okay. And they go to the beach and they're like, they're, they're digging these things up. When the tide goes out, they just start raking these things up. And so he had a bunch of these things. And so I said, yeah, sure. I'll take some. And uh, uh, so I got a bucket of quahogs. And I didn't know what to do with them. And it reminded me when my uncle bought my dad as a gift, a lobster one time, live lobster, brought over to the house, all right? We'd never had lobster in my house before. Didn't know what to do with it. Mom didn't know what to do with it. Dad didn't know what to do with it. I knew from TV that you're supposed to put in a a thing of hot water, so I did that. I'm like, well, let's try this thing out. Let's try this lobster out. I boiled a thing of hot water, threw the lobster in there, kept pulling it out, putting it back in, poor lobster, (laughs) you know? So, you know... It's like, kind of got red, so I'm like, well, that's good. And so I pulled this thing out, and it wasn't moving around anymore, so I thought that was a good sign. And uh, so I'm trying to, like, figure out, like, how to eat this thing. I couldn't figure out how to eat this thing, so I sat on the counter, and then no one ate it, you know, because we couldn't figure out. We were I mean, Midwest to the core, right, okay? So now I got this bucket of quahogs, okay? And so I saw, though, my neighbor put them on his grill. So I thought, here we go. So I put them on the grill, and I'm just waiting for them to open up. And then I ate the little thing out of it, and it was the most nasty thing I ever had in my life, right? Okay? <laughs> Why am I telling you this story about quahogs? Here's the deal. I read about this lady who got a bunch of quahogs, and she was eating. Uh, one snowy evening, she found herself craving this old recipe, so she got some. And so she's making uh, uh, these uh, four dozen quahogs back at her house there. And uh, she starts, you know, shucking it and all this stuff. And there's one that she thought was dead. It had a different color to it. It looked like it was diseased. And so she was going to throw it away. But then she decided to take a closer look. In fact, it was not dead. And inside the live clam was a rare, possibly priceless purple pearl. And she was just going to throw it away. She was going to toss it away. And in fact, it's so rare that they have a hard time putting in a price on this thing. It's so valuable. 
And that's exactly what they were doing with Jesus. He was just so rare, so valuable, but they, they just couldn't see him for who he was. They just cast him aside. And then it's easier for us to look back in history and say, how could you do that? I mean, Jesus, you just cast him aside. But don't we do this every day? His authority in our life. And we know what he wants us to do. We say, no, we're not going to do that. So the application is that we resist authority. One reason why we, we resist authority and cast it aside is because we question the goodness of those in authority. And so settle in your mind once and for all that God is good. If we can understand that God is powerful and that God is good, we can get through anything in life. But when we question God, when we're having difficult times spiritually, it's usually because we're questioning either the power of God or the goodness of God. And the Bible is abundantly clear about both of those things. He is good. Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. David wrote that psalm. If anyone had a, cha- a, 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 a reason to question the goodness of God, it would have been David. But you see, the fact that the mayor's personal circumstances don't change the goodness of God. If you read in the Psalms uh, before verse 1 in our English translations of the Bible, often there's these little uh, words that are uh, before verse 1, and they're usually in small caps, and those are actually in the original Hebrew text. And so if you read those, that's actually part of the scriptures. And and, in some translations, like the French Bible, that actually becomes verse 1 of the Psalm because they, they recognize that it is part of the Psalm. This is what Psalm 18 is about, and it tells a little story about the psalm. It says this, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of the song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hands of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul, is what he said. And then we get the psalm. If anyone had a, question, had a reason to question the goodness of God, it would have been David. I mean, he's promised to be the next uh, king, and then he's rejected. And, and so, and so the, the king is trying to kill him all along. And so he finally becomes king, and then his sons rebel against him. And so, and so there's this, this idea of it. his whole life. He's been on the run in a lot of ways. And then it says, he's, I'm just trying to do what, you do what you told me to do, God. I didn't ask to be king, but you told me I'd be king. So now I'm king, and now people are trying to kill me. At one point, Saul is like literally throwing javelins at David, trying, as, uh, as the Bible says, trying to pin him to the wall with it. And this was his father-in-law, by the way. So, I mean, just, just, if anyone had a, had a reason to question the goodness of God, it was David. But he says, his way is perfect. So he knew God was good. And so settle in your minds, once and for all, God is good. And that will go a long way to following and establishing the authority of God in your life. I need to bring this too close. Remember William Wilberforce? I started telling you about his story about how he became uh, uh, a Christian five years into his political career. John Newton asked him to use his political office for the abolition of slavery, and this became a fight for William Wilberforce. It was not an easy fight. It was a fight that he had many, many setbacks, and it would take him 20 years 20 years of constantly fighting, constantly trying to get the public to hear uh, and, and to listen, trying to get his fellow politicians to understand how bad slavery was, fighting an uphill battle. 20 years of that. But he won, and it paid off. And you and I are in a fight for our lives, 
It's going to be longer than 20 years. Every day we're threatened, and the idea of not submitting to God's authority is very real to our lives. But it's so crucial that we do. So the fight of your life is a fight over authority in both longevity and priority. And this has ramifications. The ramifications of this are enormous. I mean, this, 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 this has influence on in how we live or what we will believe or how we will respond to a culture that is rapidly changing on issues of gender, sexuality, and marriage. And what we're teaching our kids about those things, or are we teaching our kids about those things? How are we going to use our money? How are we going to use our homes? How are we going to use our time? How are we going to interact with others? All these things, all these things come down to an issue of authority. And you have only one life to live before you stand face to face with Jesus. Live this life in submission to his authority. He deserves that. And it will be good for you because he is good. And so I just want to close by saying this, and I've got a couple examples. Submitting everything to Jesus' authority is not just right for you to do. I'm not just preaching a moral lesson here. It's the best thing for you to do. It's advantageous for you. Let me give you some examples. When I think my talents are for my success and my reputation, I'm going to always wonder if I'm good enough. But if I know my talents have been given to me by a good God and for his glory, I simply do my best and then rest in his goodness. When I reduce my possessions for my, only my enjoyment, I will be constantly trying to accumulate more without satisfaction because we can never accumulate enough to maintain happiness. But if I believe that my possessions are gracious gifts from a good God, I can be satisfied and content knowing that he has given me exactly what I need. When I believe that only healthy people can fulfill their purpose in life, my world is rocked or shattered when I'm not healthy. But when I see that much of my health is outside of my control and in the control of a good provider, I can use whatever health he's given me to serve him, knowing that he's not disappointed when I'm limited by health. And when my care for others is validated by their response, I will withdraw and refuse to be transparent or vulnerable when rejected. But if I see that the inherent desire to have friends is a gift given by a good God for his glory, I will seek relationships with others regardless of how many times I'm rejected. Because being accepted by a good God is good enough. Do you see how this submitting to the authority of God in every aspect of our life, it, will, it, it touches every part of our life. It has long ramifications. So this affects everything. Let me give some homework and then we'll pray. Here's what I encourage you to do sometime this week. Identify where it is difficult to submit to God's authority. So take some time and think about it and, and see what areas of life is it hard for you to submit to God's authority? Is it in time? Is it in health? Is it in possessions? Is it in relationships? Whatever it is. Identify where it's difficult to submit to God's authority. Ask God to help you relinquish thoughts of ownership and embrace, uh, uh, oh, actually, that is totally, <laughs> totally backwards there, uh, to relinquish the thoughts of, of leasing and embrace the concept of ownership. Boy, talk about heresy. Okay, all right. Sorry about that. I must have switched. No. Is that right? Oh, okay. I was thinking just now the ownership of God in, okay, all right. You guys know how to preach my sermon. Okay, all right. Talk about how your life would change if you consistently adopted a leasing mentality. Yeah, okay, there we go. Um, is, is that we don't own it. It's God's. 
And so we're going to relinquish the owning and embrace the leasing of it. Um, so those are some things for you to think about. Maybe talk about a small group, think about throughout the week. Let me just say this, is that sometimes I get asked because usually by the end of a sermon, I'm just trying to land the plane quickly and we go through this slide fast. Sometimes people ask me to say, hey, wh- where can I get that last point, uh, last slide? On the back of the bulletin, there's a thing that says you can have the digital bulletin there. If you click on that link, if you, you put that, you can get all the slides, okay? So just so you know, if you ever miss one of these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we could spend together looking at this text. I pray it's been helpful that these men, that these tenants, they, they just rejected the authority of the true owner. And I pray that we wouldn't do that. I pray that we would not, uh, we would understand that everything we have is a gift from you and to be used for your glory. I pray that you would reveal to our hearts where we are Um, hanging on to things that maybe we should, that we need to be relinquishing. And I pray that you would use these truths to, to make us more like Christ and submitted to your authority. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.